the passage from which the teaching is based is on page 11. And also look in James chapter 5 of a Bible that you might have. We're looking at what the Bible calls the ordinary rites or practices or means by which you are normally sanctified, made more like Jesus, made more like Christ. And there are primarily three, as we've said. They are the word preached. They are the sacraments of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they are prayer. And those three may not jump out of the page to you, but as one French philosopher and Jesuit priest, Tehard de Chardin, once said, do not forget that the value and interest of life is not so much to do conspicuous things as to do ordinary things with the perception of their enormous value. And the words sacrament and prayer may not seem like they're that Amazing, but they are the way that God intends to change you. And in fact, He does change you through those means. So this morning, we're going to give our attention to the third means of grace. What is prayer? And how is it a means of grace for us? Let's cultivate a healthy prayer life so that we can be changed by the power of God. Shall we? That's what I long for for this church. And so if you would, let's give your attention now to James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Prayer. Why should you pray? When should you pray? How should you pray? First, why should you pray? You should pray because of your situation as a sinner in need of grace. Why pray? We ask that question all the time. In fact, you can't really talk about prayer unless you first address the question, why pray? But here's the problem with the question of why pray. Of all the spiritual disciplines in the Christian life, most of them have pretty quick answers. Why fast? To cultivate a sense of longing and change your desires. Well, why should you read God's Word? Because you want to learn and understand who God is. Well, why pray? Well, because it changes things. Well, like I have plenty of examples when I prayed and it didn't change a thing. Well, well why pray? Well, because it's commanded in Scripture. Well, listen, I don't even really care about the Bible. I don't care if it's commanded in Scripture, somebody might say. What else you got? Here's the trick about prayer. Not a trick. Here's the thing that you know from your own experience. You cannot really answer the why question about why pray until you can answer the question why pray for you. What I mean is that each of us can come up with some theological reason for why we should pray, and the Scriptures give us many of them. God has commanded it, indeed, as he does in James chapter 5. It does change things, yes, as it does in Second Chronicles chapter 20, as you heard read earlier today. It changes things. It is commanded. You should do it. But until you can internalize your rationale for praying, you will both neither ever do it or ever come to really appreciate it. 
And the only way to really know why pray is to pray. And if I could be so bold as to invite you to one hour of your week at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning, or you have, for those of you who have children, free child care, to come with me at 9 o'clock in the south hallway and just to pray for 35 minutes and to turn off your phones and to pray. I challenge you to come and try it. And if you try it for three times and you don't like it, listen, just don't, don't feel any pressure to ever come back. It's okay. But when you avail yourself to prayer, especially with prayer with others in a way that's guided and that's led, that doesn't feel drab, you don't feel lost, it's structured in a way that really invites you to pray, you begin to answer why it's so important for you. Each of us have a reason for why we need to pray. It is commanded. Maybe some of us are under the conviction that we just don't pray very often. And you need to feel the weight of Scripture bearing down on you to be a faithful man or woman of prayer. It does change things. And some of you, the Lord has made desperate. He's put you up in a corner between a rock and a hard place. And he said, pray because you're desperate. Yes, pray for that reason too. Some of you need to pray because you have big decisions coming up. That's why you should pray. But what does Scripture teach us here? Scripture teaches us in James chapter 5 that you are to pray not only because there are theological reasons why you should pray, but you are to pray because prayer is cultivating an intimate relationship with the Father. It is cultivating an intimate relationship with God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Clement of Alexandria, who lived... 1,600 years ago once said that prayer is define it all you want. Get as creative as you want with alliterations, preachers, but here's what prayer is, he said to the church in the East. Prayer is keeping company with God. Prayer is keeping company with God. And to not pray to the Lord is kind of like being married and never talking to your spouse. It's, it is a failed attempt to think that you're going to enjoy marital bliss unless you have communication together. Prayer is walking together with your father as a child might with a loving, doting dad. And some of you who didn't have fathers, I know this metaphor is hard, but imagine you did. A father who loves you and who cares for you and just wants to see you and just wants to know that you're there and have him wrap his arms around you. That's what prayer's like. And guys, it's not feminine. There's nothing more manly to do than to say, I can't do this. God, I need your help. Prayer is cultivating an intimate relationship with the Lord. It is the Lord wrapping his arms around you and saying, I'm with you. I care for you. We are in this together. Prayer is so assumed in Scripture that to find a particular text to speak about prayer, you know, you could go to Ephesians 16, 19, you should pray always, or James chapter 5, as we're going to look at for the next couple of weeks. But it is subsumed and saturated through every bit of prayer that, frankly, it's convicting for me to preach on it because I know how little, how little prayer is a mark of my life. And people knew People knew in the history of the church that prayer would become something that we would relegate. Just as James is 
audience relegated, these Jewish Christians. They so relegated that the early church began, beginning at 525 with Benedict, began to form times of prayer in order to pray. Psalm 119 says, I pray seven times a day I come before your holy sanctuary. And the church took those seven times a day and they inculcated them in set times of prayer, not because they're trying to be legalistic, but because they were trying to teach us that prayer should be, as the Puritans said, our native air and our vital breath. Why should you pray? Come to prayer at 9 a.m. and let's explore that question together. If you're not a Christian, please come and pray with us at 9. Keep coming to worship together. And if you are a believer in this room, then you know that much more how important it is that you avail yourself to prayer because you need grace now more than you ever thought you did. Second, when to pray. Why do you pray? You pray because of your situation as a sinner in need of grace. When do you pray? You pray in your particular situation. The Psalms give us great templates for how to pray. Psalm 59, for example, starts out, as I read this week, with just this vitriolic prayer against the enemies. Lord, I'm suffering. I'm hemmed in. I am exactly what James is talking about here. I am suffering and I'm praying. And it ends very ironically with a hymn of praise in Psalm 59. Or you see in Second Chronicles chapter 20 that we read earlier, Jehoshaphat and his men, he was, he was being attacked. Judah was being attacked. Their backs were up against a wall and they had, they had no idea what to do. If you want to memorize a verse this week, then Second Chronicles twenty twelve is a great verse to memorize. Lord, we are desperate. We are powerless against the great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Oh, if there ever was a prayer to memorize, that surely is it. And then as Second Chronicles chapter 20 begins to unfold and you get down toward the end of the chapter, toward verse 30 or so, what happens? The Lord fights for his people and that prayer of desperation all of a sudden is turned to a prayer of rejoicing. And so they hear repeated like what you hear in Psalm 136, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. There it is. They're, they're quoting David's psalm in the midst of being rescued by God. Their prayer of desperation became a prayer of triumph. And here in James chapter 5, James says to his people, if you're suffering, pray. And if you're cheerful, sing psalms of praise. And what James is not saying is that you should pray when you're suffering and then you should pray when you're cheerful. But don't really bother if you're not either extreme. That's not what he's saying. Of course it's not what he's saying. The word that James uses for suffering is kakopatheia. It's a fun word to say. Would you say it with me? Kakopatheia. It's a great word, right? It means suffering. It's the term that, that uh, James uses back in verse 10 of James chapter 5. It's the term that he uses in 2 Timothy when Paul is saying, I'm suffering in the chains of my bondage as I pray for you, Timothy. And then he also uses this great word from which the word Eucharist comes from, cheerfulness or celebration. Euthymeo, 
which you should pray when you're cheerful. And it's not just when you're happy because of your circumstances. It's a deep sense of contentment. So much so that Paul could use that very same word in Acts chapter 27 when he says, I pray that you are deeply contented and that you take heart. That's the word. Even while the ship that these brothers were on was breaking up and they were at peril at sea. So James is saying that whether you are suffering or whether you are deeply, deeply content and joyful and satisfied by your situation, you should pray. And the interesting thing about prayer is that when you pray in your particular situation, no matter what it might be today, when you begin to pray that way, you find that over time the trajectory of your prayers moves from prayers of suffering and of devastation and of desperation begins to become prayers of gratitude and cheerfulness. The, the desperation really never leaves you, this side of glory. But it's a, it's a mark of maturity that you see throughout many of the psalms on prayer. They start out with agonizing pain, and they end with amazing faith and joy. What's happening? The Lord is giving us as his people a template for how, though it may, might not be perceptible to us as we pray, but he moves us from prayers only out of our despondence into prayers of pure gratitude and pure joy. And when you learn to pray in your particular situation, no matter where on that continuum you might be, you begin to find that prayer becomes for you something precious and beautiful. And you find your why. Because you begin to become integrated in a way that you weren't integrated before. You're able to rest in his presence in a way you were not able to rest in his presence. One writer puts it this way, all true prayer pursued far enough becomes praise and it does not always get there quickly or easily and the trip can take a lifetime, but the end is always praise. There are intimations of this throughout the Psalms, not infrequently, even in the middle of a terrible lament Defying logic and without transition, praise erupts. Five hallelujah psalms conclude the Psalter. And they are extraordinarily robust. And no matter how much we suffer, he writes, no matter how deep our doubts may be, no matter how angry we get, there's no other way to say it except that prayers move from suffering to praise. And when our prayers are pursued far enough, they become joyous. Don't push it. Don't rush it. It may take years, even decades, before certain prayers arrive at the hallelujahs of Psalm 146 through 150. Not every prayer is capped off with praise. In fact, most prayers, if the Psalter is a true guide, are not. But prayer is always reaching toward the praise, and it one day will finally arrive there. James is telling these Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem to pray no matter where you are in the orbit of human emotion. When do you pray? You pray in your particular situation, wherever that might be. Where are you? Prayer is your means of grace. What are you going through? Good or bad, now is the season for prayer. Why do you pray? You, pre you pray because you are a sinner in need of grace. 
When do you pray? You pray in your particular situation, which is to say you always are ready and should be ready to pray. And your prayers begin to move from pain and suffering to cheerfulness. And quite frankly, each of our personalities tend to pray in one of these seasons over the other, don't they? And you may be a one, one who loves to pray in suffering, and maybe you need to actually learn to pray and pray. Prayer, pray a prayer of praise. That was tough, thank you. Maybe it's that you need to be able to take your, hem, your bulletin home and pray the hymns we sing that are hymns of praise. And maybe if you're contented, and maybe if you're denying the true situations or issues of your life, maybe you need to begin to recognize where you really are as a sinner in need of grace. You pray because you're a sinner in need of grace. When do you pray? You pray in your particular situation, as James commands us. And then how do you pray? How do you pray? When do you pray? You pray in your situation. How do you pray? You pray out of your situation, no matter what it might happen to be. James tells us that we are to pray out of our own experience all the time. James is the prophet of the New Testament. He just comes out. He is white hot, and he does not mince words. This is Jesus' half-brother who laughed at Jesus when he was younger, wanted nothing to do with it, didn't even believe in Jesus. And then James comes to faith, shocked that this man he knew so well as his half-brother raised as though he were a true brother of his, of Joseph and Mary, becomes a Christian, believes the finished work of his own brother, Jesus, and then begins to lead the Jerusalem church. And he writes the first letter of the New Testament. And he gives topics like, you persevere through times of testing, because that's Christian, how you know if you're really a true believer. You don't just hear what the Word says, but you live it out. He talks about practical living in James 1, 19 through 27. He says, quit showing partiality to those who look like you, dress like you, act like you. In James chapter 2, he says, faith without works is dead. In the middle of James chapter 2, then he talks about the devastation of dissension within community. If the passing of the peace in the church lets you pass, uh, uh, passes you by without you going to reconcile with a brother or sister, that wreaks more havoc in the church than you could ever begin to realize unity in the church is crucial. And James pounds on that in James chapter 3. Then he talks about the sins of the wealthy, which would be every person in this room, by the way, and our tendency to put wealth over against our faith. And then he concludes with prayer's importance, because even in the early church, James knew that there has to be the end of chapter 5 in my letter. Because Christians, even Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, with all the glories that they would have access to, they relegate prayer and they do not do it. Prayer, James says, is to be prayed out of your particular situation. And it is to be done so in a way that allows the application of the gospel to sink into your hearts. Because that's what prayer is. Prayer is keeping company with God. And you can't schedule extraordinary events when you have friendships, can you? You just have to keep company with them. And then you look back and go, man, that was amazing. That Tuesday afternoon was amazing. You didn't plan that. Prayer is keeping company with God. When should you pray? You pray in your situation. How do you pray? You pray out of it, wherever you may happen to be. 
we have a garden in our backyard, and at regular times of the year, we sow seeds in it, and we plant those seeds. And you know, those of you who garden, especially in Oklahoma, you know that there are particular things that need to be true of the soil. There need to be soil that's able to nourish those seeds. And not only that, but even if you have good soil for those seeds to germinate in, that doesn't mean that they're going to grow. What else do you need? You need things from the outside in, don't you? You need water and you need sunshine. And you can try to grow plants all you want, even shade-faring plants. But you know that without sunshine and without water, those plants will wither and they will die. And that is the way it is with prayer for us. Each of us have been planted in Owasso, Oklahoma, nurtured in the context of Trinity Presbyterian Church. And with all the glorious nutrients that that provides for us, you cannot begin to grow. You cannot begin to grow roots down or to grow fruit up unless you have both water and sunshine. And the water and sunshine of the Christian life is our prayer life. It is coming together to say, Lord, we need you. And you think of prayer the way you think about water and sunshine on the plants that you cultivate in your backyards. That is what the Lord calls us to do. But here's a very personal um, confession about prayer. It is sometimes a great temptation of mine to not feel like I can pray stupid prayers. Oh, God, please help my car not to run out of gas. Oh, God, please help me not to, like, strangle my children. I'm so frustrated. Like, oh, God, please help me to uh, make it to the end of the month on our budget. Lord, please help me. Like, sometimes as I grow as a Christian, I begin to feel like those are kind of selfish prayers. And I ought to graduate to more important prayers. Like, I ought to pray Psalm 24, like I prayed in the pastoral prayer. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Thank you, God, for all that's yours. And I had to prayer the attributes of God. And I had a prayer. I need a Bible study on how to pray. And I need to read books on prayer. But here is a trick and a secret that I've recently been very convicted of. And we read about it this morning at 9 a.m. prayer. Sometimes the greatest prayers you can pray are the ones that are most selfish. Because if you wait before you have, until you have pure motives, and if you wait until you can get all of your language just right, the reality check, of course, is you will never get to that point. I have four children, and they have brought me gifts through the years, and some of your own children have brought me gifts after the service. And many of these gifts, parents, you know, are like amazingly awful artwork. Like the colors bleed through the lines and there is like shapes you can't really make out. But you know what? No parent has ever received a piece of art from their children and scolded them for it, have they? We bring our prayers to God and they may be messy and they may not look right. But you know what? The Lord is just glad that we come to him as a child comes to a father. How much worse, parents, is it? Not that your children give you a great, perfect piece of art, whatever your criteria of art might be. It is far worse, isn't it, if they never came to you at all. And they said to you, we won't come to you because I don't want you to reject me. I always feel like you're disappointed in me. Father, your Father in heaven wants you to bring your prayers. 
mixed motives and all to him. And in fact, some of you will never begin to pray until you're able to take those selfish, very selfish requests and to forget about how selfish they are and just cry out to them. God, I need your help. My marriage is a mess. I need your help with my children. Lord, would you help me to be able to sell this project to this client this week? Lord, would you help me to be able to meet the goals that I feel like you've given me? Lord, those are legitimate requests because it's like a child bringing to a father a piece of artwork. Now, from the father's perspective, you might not think it's that pretty, but God never thinks that. He loves to hear your prayers. Are you with me? If we're going to become a praying church, and if we're going to avail ourselves to the means of grace, then we have to become people who are willing to bring mixed motives and all our prayers before him, no matter how selfish you may think they are. They're not selfish to God. Isn't that funny? He loves you so much, they're never selfish to him. And so who are you to think that you're greater than God, that you could determine the quality of your prayers? Just come to him. And sometimes, frankly, prayers, um, our prayer, time of prayer isn't all that much. There's a friend of mine who um, was on a retreat recently, and at the retreat he said, okay, I'm going to take for the next hour... I'm just going to sit with God, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to get some revelation, some fresh word from God. And so my friend Pete sat with the Lord, and he didn't open his Bible. He didn't want to be distracted by anything. He just wanted to sit. And so he sat, and he said, Lord, please speak to me. And 15 minutes passes, and, you know, he was not getting anything. And so he says, Lord, help me. And he opened up the Psalms, began to read the Psalms, and 45 minutes passed. And he just feels dry. He just feels like there's nothing there. And he doesn't really know what to do. And he's kind of getting discouraged. And he presses on to meet his goal of an hour. And he gets to an hour. And he closes his Bible and begins to get up. And he was sitting outside on the porch. And he was just watching the sunset. Thought it was a good place to maybe, you know, God might show up. And as he was getting up to walk off, he said it was like the Holy Spirit said clearer than anything he could have ever read. He said, Pete, thank you for watching the sunset with me. I just enjoyed being with you. Most of us, if we're honest, think that our time is more valuable than God's. And that... This is not to make you feel guilty. This is just to help you recognize that your father loves to spend time with you. And do you therefore make the time to spend with him? When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed an extraordinary prayer because he prayed a prayer for you. He says in John 17, 9, he says, I am praying for them. And then 10 verses later, Jesus says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. It is Jesus himself who prays for us, even right now at the right hand of the Father, who by his intercession, by his invitation to prayer, is consecrating us. There it is, the means of grace to shape you and mold you. He's shaping you more and more into his image. 
And I dare challenge you to come and join me at 9 a.m. to pray in the south hallway. And let's see how many people we can pack into it. And we'll guide you through a liturgical time of prayer and just to give space to wait for 35 minutes and to pray and to rest and to seek our Father's face as little children handing him our artwork and saying, oh, Daddy, thank you. Thank you for your goodness to me. Here is my suffering. Thank you that you love me. And you know that the greatest place of prayer is arguably in the table that we're about to partake of. The heart of Christian prayer, one author says, is the celebration of the Eucharist or of Holy Communion. And nearly every aspect of prayer that we seek to teach our people is proclaimed there, caught up in the Eucharistic feast, examination of your heart, repentance, petition, forgiveness, contemplation, thanksgiving, and celebration. It's here. It is, it's, it most perfectly embodies the central core of prayer in that we are full participants in the action. But the grace that comes is all of God. All of the senses are employed in the table. We see, smell, touch, taste. We hear the words of institution. This is my body. This is my blood. And in short, the Eucharistic prayer is the most complete form of prayer we ever make this side of eternity. Would you prepare your hearts to come to your Heavenly Father? Bring the suffering with you. Bring the cheerfulness with you. Why do you pray? Pray and figure out why you should pray. He delights in you. When should you do it? In your particular situation, which is to say, always. How should you do it? Right where you are, out of your particular situation. Breathe in, breathe out. Prayer ought to be in the life of our church, our native air, and our vital breath. Is it yours? Your Savior prays for you even now. Would you come to him? Do you know him? Let's pray. Father, we confess that we desperately need to learn to pray. And when we're honest, we know that we often don't even want to pray. We are distracted. We are stubborn. We are self-centered. And in your mercy, Jesus, bring our wants more in line with our needs so that we can come to want what we need. And in your name and for your sake, I pray. Amen.